1: From WBEZ Chicago, this is the Nerdat Book Club. I'm Greta Johnson, and this month our book is Danielle Evans' short story collection, The Office of Historical Corrections. First things first, here is your spoiler warning. If you haven't read the book and you don't want to know what happens in it, go listen to the author interview that's already in the feed, and you can come back when you're ready. If you have read the book or if you are totally okay with spoilers, carry on. Our panelists this month are two excellent humans. Making her Nerdette debut, it is Rebecca Mackay, the author of a short story collection and several novels, including The Great Believers. She's also a faculty member of Northwestern University's MFA program. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much. I am so excited to talk about this book with you. Also with us is Jen White, the host of the NPR Talk Show 1A. Hello, Jen. Hello, Greta. So there are six stories in here, and then the novella. I loved them all very much. I feel like we could spend like an entire academic quarter actually unpacking them. (laughs) Uh, For today's sake, we decided we're going to focus mainly on two specific short stories, and then the novella. But of course, if anything else comes up about any of other elements along the way, that's great. We'll also, of course, be hearing from some of you. Let's actually start with a voicemail. Here is Andrea
2: hey Dead, it's andrea from chandler arizona calling about the office of historical corrections so i picked up this book from the library and was thinking oh perfect a collection of short stories i can pick it up and put it down and squeeze it into my busy life wrong every story i read was like oh fuck i just had to lay on my back and think about it and it haunted my brain So I ended up returning it to the library and buying it. What proof of the the power of a short story. So thank you.
1: I love that voicemail for a number (laughs) of reasons. And she's actually not the only person to call in with like an oh fuck reaction to this book, which I just think (laughs) is delightful. But I thought a good place for us to start is just to talk about short stories as a genre. Um, I think I'm often kind of conflicted about them because often it's like, if I if I didn't really care about it, then it kind of feels like a waste of my time. And if I really loved it, then I'm like, why isn't this just a novel? But this collection, like I was just so happy to be along for the ride. They all felt like perfect bite-sized morsels. And I was so happy about that. I'm curious what you two think about the genre. I mean, Rebecca, you've written them. So I'm especially curious about that. But Jen, let's start with you. As a reader, do you usually gravitate towards
3: short stories? I do. I, I love short stories. Um and, and I think part of it has got to do with bandwidth in that yeah. <laughs> I get the satisfaction of a complete story um, with the limited amount of time I have to read for pleasure. And so, you know, I have certain websites that I, that I love, like, you know, the Thursday they drop new short stories because I can just go and immerse myself in a world and, and come out feeling like I've had that experience of reading a full book, but, you know, being able to, to work it out in, in under an hour.
1: Yeah, that is, I mean, yeah, you make that sound very appealing. Rebecca, <laughs> as a reader and a writer, like, what do you think? What makes a short story really great?
2: Is it different from a novel? I have too many thoughts about this. You know, <laughs> I think that one reason that some people don't gravitate towards short stories as readers is they get exposed to really boring ones, Yeah, whether that's in school or, to be honest, there are certain kind of high-prestige magazines, glossy magazines that publish what actually aren't short stories. They're actually novel excerpts kind of repackaged as a short story because that author has a book coming out and then they find it really unsatisfying. No kidding. Um, these are stories that are going to convert anyone. I think these are fun and and they're, they're sometimes dark. I don't mean that they're light. I don't mean that they're frivolous. They are immersive. They're often hilarious. Um, they're set in fascinating places. You are, you have that immersive feel of, I just, I just, you know, injected something straight into my veins. And and I think this could make a comfort out of anyone.
1: Yeah. I think that's one really fascinating thing about this book is that it is fun, but it's also dark. I keep mm-hmm. thinking of it in terms of like the, the Crayola marker bold colors, <laughs> You know what I mean? Where there's like some depth and some richness to it, but they're still like saturated and bright and fun at the same time. I love that. That's that I, I feel it, right. So, in terms of short story collections, what
3: do you think makes a really good one, Jen? Oh, that's a good question. for me, it's it's not that the stories have to as a collection take me on the journey but on a journey but i want each story on its own to take me on a journey if that makes sense yeah totally like that's that's what i look for in in a collection um it's it like i said it's like this a, this experience of dropping into a world and and feeling like that world is completely realized within those those pages mm-hmm. that's what i that's what i really look for
1: One thing Danielle said when I interviewed her that I loved was that she thinks this collection is sort of like answering the same question or asking the same question over and over again and Mm -hmm. sort of like circling around it, which I just loved because it's not really until you read them all that I think you can kind of see that, but I just thought it was... I don't know. It was just like she kind of blew my... It was an oh fuck moment, I'll just say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's dive into some of our favorites. Let's start with uh, Richard of York Gave Battle in Vain, which is the one about the wedding with the Noah's Ark theme. (laughs) Oh God, there are just so many amazing things about this story. Um, To brush y'all up, if you don't quite remember, um, our protagonist is Rena. She's a photojournalist. She's friends with this guy named JT who's about to get married to Dory. She's the daughter of a pastor. She's the one who decided on this like rainbow theme for her wedding. Um, and Rina is Rena. Gosh, I should have pulled the line. There's a beautiful uh, there are several beautiful lines in this one, but it's it's about essentially how she like partly because of her work. She travels around so much with the intention of being unburdened. But that means that she's never actually really anywhere. And I don't know. I think that was kind of a theme that you see throughout the book that I thought was really beautiful. But you learn also that Rena is haunted by the fact that her sister was shot by her husband and her sister is still alive, but, you know, has really serious brain damage and she hasn't seen her in a really long time. And it it comes up for her a lot, Um, which is tragic. It's devastating. But there are also, I think, partly because of the Rainbow Bridesmaids, like so many (laughs) funny elements of this story too. Jen, what stood out to you about this one?
3: Yeah, I, what I was really captured by was this idea of the, the, the like the stories we tell ourselves about what, what has happened, what is happening, um, what could happen mm-hmm. and how those stories regardless of whether or not they're rooted in reality how they just they shape how we move through the world yeah um because each each of the characters here is is telling themselves a different story um and at the point where you know two people two of the women's stories sort of converge it turns into something that's just so unexpected <laughs> and kind of miraculous um yeah that's what that's what stood out to me
1: So and what you're referring to is is that Dory wakes up first thing on her wedding day and her fiance JT is gone and she thinks he's skipped out. So then she and Rena go on this like very strange road trip that you think (laughs) is going to be to like go get JT, but turns into this like kind of magical, strange, gorgeous, just like wild day that they had. And it turns out JT had gotten back in time for the wedding and they're the ones who skipped out. And it's Mm -hmm. just like, Ah, I just loved that. What did you think, Rebecca? <laughs>
2: yeah, I think the, the fact that it, it you struggled a tiny bit at the beginning, like, how do I get this all in? I think that speaks to how much is in this story. Yeah. And th- there's just this incredible richness. I think um, it's tempting when you sit down to write to just pick out a thing or two that you're going to write about and sort of shut out everything else that you don't think belongs in there. And this story, not only does it have so much to begin with, because we have, you know, we have the backstory, we have, um, you know, how did she get to know these people, then the mm-hmm. sister, we also have the present with this wedding, we have this action, this guy goes missing, and then she's not afraid to leave that all behind. And Okay, no, we're, we're leaving that setting. We're going somewhere completely different now. Um, we're going, you know, to this water park, <laughs> like, no, who saw that coming it's at the beginning <laughs> of the story, right? Um, and it all, it fits, it has the chaos of real life, but it has this sort of exuberance to it, even as it's theoretically a really dark story.
1: Yeah. I love to just, I feel like this story is made up of so many unlikely friendships too. I mean, even... The th- the reason why Rena and JT know each other is this very strange sort of like almost international intrigue, but also super boring mm-hmm. backstory mm-hmm. and the mystery around, you know, Dory is always super skeptical about like whether or not Rena and JT slept together at that time. And, and by all accounts, Rena kind of should have, right? Like so much about her backstory is that she kind of just slept with anybody and didn't really care if they were married or had girlfriends or whatever. But for whatever reason... With JT, she like kind of respects the fact that he already has a girlfriend, or at least neither of them try
2: anything with each other, which is really interesting. Yeah, it's the, simply the way and this is the, the craft nerd, craft log part of me. Yes, good. The way that she leaves backstory in mm. is absolutely phenomenal because she doesn't it doesn't come at us in big chunks. It's not flashback it's not, and suddenly I remembered <laughs> um it is just there, woven through everything that's happening in the present. The past is there, and the past is is chasing this character around just as she ends up you know on this on this kind of wild goose chase in the story as well.
3: The other thing I thought the story captured really beautifully was the longing for sisterhood as someone who has lost a, a sister mm-hmm. um and, and though in the story um Elizabeth is is alive but she's not you know available to Rena in the way that that she had been because of her brain injury and and at the end when it just repeats wish you were here wish you were here wish you were here like even now I get I get a little um yeah. choked up because I understand that longing you know that longing for that very specific connection um, that you find with with a sister, um, and just that sort of um, in, ending the story on that note. Uh, it just it just oh it it hit me right right in the feels man <laughs> it hit me right yeah. in the feels
2: yeah. It's such an earned moment. It's it's not it, she, she's she's planted these seeds all along she hasn't hit that note too hard. It's not someone sitting around stewing on this. It's just been seeping into the story. Mm -hmm. And then we have that previous mention of the frame on this photo that says, wish you were here. And so a page later, um, when that that repetition of that line comes, it's just, it's the harvesting of so much that's already gone on in the story.
1: Yeah. So another story we want to discuss is, why won't women just say what they want, which is, I think, a pretty significant stylistic departure from the other stories in this collection. Um, Gosh, how do you even synopsize this one? No one is really named. There's an artist. He's on an apology tour. I think that's kind of all we need to know. Let's actually start with a voicemail before we dive into this one. This is Sarah. Hi, Internet, This is Sarah from Chicago. I love this whole collection. Um, I had a hard time picking a favorite, but Boys Go to Jupiter would probably be at the top if I if I had to make a list. Um, and then the other story
2: is uh, why won't women just say what they want? Um, I actually read that one first because a reviewer somewhere on the internet had said it was hysterical, and I did not find it funny at all. I mean, it was. I found it very
1: true. So anyway, looking forward to the book panel. Thanks again for a great, a great pick. I just thought that was so, I don't know. I thought it was very funny as well. I feel like people are really divided on that one. Rebecca, did you think it was funny? I think it's
2: hilarious. And I think it is um, alarmingly hilarious, right? We have this guy who is gaslighting everyone in his life repeatedly. Right. And the humor for me is in, you know, his early confessions, or not confessions, apologies, rather, of I've done the best I can here. And I'm sorry, if even after my attempts to apologize, you are unable to forgive me, although uh, clearly forgiving you for giving up on me in the first place. It is darkly funny, let's be clear. And it's like, Oh, God, we know that guy. I
3: laughed a lot.
1: What did you think, Jen? Did you find humor in this
3: truth? I I found (laughs) okay, so I found humor, um, but it was sort of like it was a connect the dot humor. So at the very beginning of the story, when um, the model actress who dated him a while ago says, who knows, who cares? I hope he fell into a volcano. Mm-hmm. And then the very, very end of the story, when he falls into a volcano that he created. <laughs> because somebody pushes him in because she was like, your apology is shit. (laughs) And he never, you can kind of surmise that this guy, yeah, of course he made a rule volcano because he never thought somebody would actually push him in. Mm -hmm. So there was just, it was, it was sort of this moment of ruthless humor. Um, It was also disturbingly familiar in so many ways, you know? And I think that was the part where, I had trouble I had trouble laughing at it until I got to that very end and then I laughed if that all makes sense.
1: Totally. Yeah. It was I read the book initially. I listened to the audiobook as I was prepping for this and like I was just in my kitchen like cutting onions laughing out loud <laughs> like I don't know. There's something about the I maybe it is the ruthlessness of the jokes. Like he's just so obviously a complete asshole. Mm-hmm. And like I, I think it's just that extremity of it. Like she's taken it so far that I can just see it and laugh because like it's it's everywhere. But I don't know. There's still a brightness to it. And like a I don't know. It feels like it's in on the joke in a way that I really appreciate. Maybe because so often stories about those sorts of things are told by men. Mm-hmm. And to hear a woman's perspective about them in this like pretty snarky way, I just find really refreshing. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: I think
2: it's a skewering of apology culture yes. um, in many ways. And it, it's what I love about it is, you know, he we learned that early on he was very bad at apologies and we get this sense of, you know, I mean, the, like the one that I read a minute ago, it's like, oh, that's not an apology. Come on. And I'm then, sorry you're so sensitive, Right, I'm <laughs> sorry that you, that you can't understand. Um, yeah. Then he essentially, you know, he does this apology tour that these are way more immersive and, and self-reflective apologies. These are really like the, the best apology you could give someone. But it's still fundamentally about himself. It's this show, he's, he's making it his art and it's not good enough. It is it is so not good enough. And we um, th- this guy is going to pay for it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting to hear you say that because I
1: I agree that they're certainly like more self-reflective than the first ones. But so many of them are still like literally impositions oh, yes. on these women, you know, like they're still
3: very shitty apologies. hmm. Because they're performative. Yeah, Yeah,
2: you, you could say, well, what more could he possibly do? He's doing the most he could possibly do. And that's the problem. <laughs> you know, that's the, a lot of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing way too much. Yes. Rebecca,
1: can you elaborate a little on what you
2: mean by apology culture? You know, it's not, it's, it's, I don't, you know, mean to suggest that we are, you know, in some cultural moment of apology, but just that the the flip side of Me Too and of other cultural reckonings is this sort of a genre Of the apology letter or of the public apology. And there's, there's a, you know, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone put one of those out where people have gone, yep, that was the right way to do it.
1: Yeah, it is really interesting to think about sort of like, okay, so we have this new system to hold people accountable. It's largely on social media. There's also the very real truth that like people are going to make mistakes. And in a lot of cases, they should be allowed to make those mistakes, you know. But, how then, to admit that you've made a mistake and actually try to you know remedy the wrongs you've done and be less of an asshole in the future? I do still feel like, yeah, as you say, like a functional template for that still seems to be missing generally,
3: yeah, and I think one of the one of the dynamics I'm listening to you talk, Rebecca, is that you know when we think about apologies. For, for me, at least, you know, those those are moments that happen between me and the person I wronged mm-hmm. or the person who wronged me. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not this public declaration. I apologize to Jennifer mm-hmm. because there's usually a lot that has to be unpacked within the process of that apology. Like, yeah. what are you apologizing for? What am I apologizing for? why do we feel it's necessary to apologize? You know, it's there's like a lot that has to happen that the, that social media does not, it's not the place to include that nuance. And by making it a, a performance, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it sort of, it minimizes what I think is often just really an intimate thing that happens between, between people. Um, once you put it on a
1: billboard, its impact is lessened.
3: <laughs> right. What is it? What is who are who are you apologizing to at that moment? Um, and so this this kind of convergence of fame and you know personal wrongs that become public wrong. You know, it's like all of that. It makes it all really really messy. <laughs> and I think in this story, we see we see that played out to the nth degree. You know, to to the point that one of the women he apologizes for the apology itself sends her into therapy. It's so, <laughs> yeah. you know, discombobulating for her. Right.
2: It's it's sort of a rigidio ad absurdum, I think, of some of what we're dealing with in all of this. The the, and it, and I think you're absolutely right that the 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 public forum is the problem in so much of this, including in in the examples in the story.
1: Hmm. Let's listen to another voicemail. Here's Liz.
2: Hey, Nerdette. This is Liz from Minnesota. Your interview with Danielle Evans was so helpful in reframing all the stories and really giving them a different viewpoint than how I read them the first time. So seeing them not just as things gone wrong, uh, but more as insufficient apologies was huge. I loved that version of reading
1: them. Thanks so much. Bye. I just thought that was really it's funny because that's the insight that like I hadn't even gotten from my conversation with Danielle. So to hear Lisa, I was like, oh, yeah,
2: totally. <laughs> so the idea being that each of these stories is in itself the, the themed around an insufficient apology or is. Yeah, I love that.
1: Right. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: More
0: on the book in just a minute.
1: On the note of apology, the story we're going to talk about next, which is the novella, which is titled The Office of Historical Corrections, also targets that in a really interesting way. Um, a brief synopsis, we have Cassie. She works for a governmental organization called the Institute for Public History, which is sort of like a bureaucratic fact checker. Um, she has a childhood a frenemy, I think, maybe is the best way to describe Genevieve. They end up working together. They have very different roles there. Um, Genevieve is, I think it's fair to say she's like the, an instigator in a lot of ways. Like she she calls things as she sees them. She's very frank. Cassie tends to be a little bit more on the trying to appease people side of things. Um, and Cassie gets called out to, to clean up something that happens in Wisconsin. Um, I think I'll just leave it at that for now. There's so much to unpack with this one. Um, it's another story, I think, like all of them, really, that is that has a lot of really funny and just like incisive moments. But that's also at its core, really devastating.
2: What did what did you think, Rebecca? Um, you know, it, it. this certainly it's about 100 pages long. Um, this absolutely has the depth and texture of a novel. And that's I, I'd be very, very careful that although I, I, of course, love this story, I don't mean, oh, it. Could have been a novel if only. <laughs> I mean, hmm. it's perfect as it is. It just is going to remind people um, of that—that that incredibly complicated the, the the layers of relationships that you're able to get to in a novel. Where, for instance, the relationship between Cassie and Genevieve evolves multiple times throughout the story. Yes, um, yeah. where Cassie changes tremendously throughout the story, what she believes. Uh, how she conducts herself, the um, this town in Wisconsin is evolving in, in unexpected ways Um, there, you know, very often a real short story is, is a bit more of a snapshot um, of a certain moment. You know, we we were just looking at the one uh, Richard of York gave battle in vain that takes place over a couple of days, Mm -hmm. or we're looking at um, why won't women just say what they want, which has a broader time span but it's really about a couple different specific eras in this person's life this has a long a long time span a broad scope and a tremendous amount of depth in character relationships which is i think why it's 100 pages why it needs to be 100 pages
1: yeah it's phenomenal what did you think jen Ooh. Yeah.
3: Th- it, this was uh, this one was a l- it was a lot. Um and for for some for some deeply personal reasons too because one of the one of the the themes the book this this uh, novella explores is this idea of passing um where mm-hmm. black people who were fair-skinned enough or had um white passing features would basically pretend to be white for, you know, jobs, for safety. And there are different layers to this. Like, and I come from a family where we had white passing family members. I remember being a little girl, it's about eight years old, and we went to Mississippi to visit some of my mom's relatives. And we went to this one cousin's house, and she introduced me to, you know, my older family members. And I said, <laughs> I said, Mama, who are these white people? Wow. But they were because they were, they looked white, blue eyes, mm-hmm. dark hair. And she kind of like, you know, gave me the sharp elbow and was like, stop asking questions. I'll explain it later. <laughs> but what it, I mean, they were living as black people at that point. But earlier, they had passed as as white. Wow. Yeah, that was,
1: that was going to be my next question. A, a story that talks about passing in a really beautiful way is the vanishing half, which Britt Bennett w- wrote, it came out last year. And and that involves essentially a woman who realizes she can pass. And in order to do that, she has to abandon her entire family.
3: And you see a very similar dynamic at play here. Yeah. Um, and it's and that was just fascinating to me, just the way she explored that against this backdrop of a possible a possible lynching. So it's like in part in part, mystery, mm-hmm. um, in part exploration of of f- friendship, or maybe friendship, but also the dynamic um, that Cassie and Genevieve show through their exploration of what it means to be a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a line where Genevieve said Genevieve says I've met a lot of black women who had to learn it was okay. To choose to be happy, yeah. but you're the only one I know who was raised to expect it. And she says that about Cassie. And when I tell you that hit me straight in the gut, because it it you see in these two women, um, Genevieve, even though she was raised in this family of privilege.
1: Right. She was a lot better off than Cassie she, in a lot she of ways. Was
3: a, she was a lot better off than Cassie economically, right? Mm-hmm. But she has struggled to... I wouldn't even say embrace her identity, but to just figure out what it means for her to be mm-hmm. a black woman. While Cassie, it, it feels her identity as a black woman is a, is a little more malleable and kind of changes depending upon who she's in proximity with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just watching that dynamic at play with these two women, it was just, it was just incredible. I thought the character work with both of them was just just phenomenal.
2: It's complicated for me, too, by the fact that going up into this largely white town in Wisconsin, Cassie is able to finesse things and to come off in a, in a way that the people in the town are relating to more, where they really reacted poorly to Genevieve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I think Cassie is, is prone early on to see that as her strength, that she can go in there and do, you know, come off better um, do the things that Genevieve couldn't. And that's really called into question. And, and I yeah. admire that tremendously.
3: Well, and I think you, you I just want to highlight something you said, Rebecca, That that Cassie is able to do it. It's, to my mind, it's more that Cassie chooses to do it. Oh, I think sure. Genevieve is capable. She's just made this choice that she's, <laughs> she's not going <laughs> to, you know, she's just not gonna, she's not going to do it. Um, and and the way that plays out for both of them um to rather tragic ends. Um, whew, it's it's just it's chilling. I had to sit with this one for a while.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to it. I do want to talk about the corrections element of this story too. Um, because I think it's really fascinating, especially within the context of having lived through the Trump administration when so many things were thrown into question around what is real and what is a lie. Um, this story, you know, and obviously that's not the only time that has come up in American history, but I, I, it felt especially prescient to read this story, you know, in October of last year for that reason. Mm. Um, and to think about what it would be like to have, to have a government that was interested in investing in people who were kind of boots on the ground for truth is also just such a fascinating thing to even try to conceive of, you know?
3: Yeah. As, as somebody working in, in journalism, (laughs) I was like, you know, I can see how this would be problematic, but there's also part of me that might really enjoy this being a thing, (laughs) but it, but even, even in, even in the truth telling, Um, and, and this is part of the dynamic that plays out between Cassie and Genevieve. Mm -hmm. It's like how, how much truth in the story, how much truth is too much truth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's where it gets very, very complicated.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. I usually think of truth as a binary, but of course it's on a spectrum too, right?
3: Mm
2: -hmm. It also, I think, I think that for me reading this, um, you know, in the waning years of Trump, it it complicated the idea of this agency for me where I think I might have otherwise read it and gone, Oh, wouldn't that be cool if we could have, you know, we could, we could, you know, search this out and correct things. And my mind went immediately to in the wrong hands Uh that kind Mm. of (laughs) force, that kind of agency is, is rewriting history um, to suit its own needs. And that certainly has happened. I certainly had this additional weight behind it for me, um, given what was going on in the world of like, oh, God, it's it's probably, you know, wouldn't it be great if this were real, but then I can instantly see how it could be turned into something absolutely horrible, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: Let's listen to another voicemail. I thought this one was really insightful. Here's Sadie. Hello, Greta and friends. This is Sadie from Missoula, Montana. I have always kind of stayed away from short stories, but after this, I feel like I should be reading more of them. All of these stories just kind of remind me that if people aren't acting the way that you like, it's probably not their first choice either. And I think that that's a nice thing to keep in mind, especially as the world starts to shift again with pandemic and social opportunities. Um, Thank you so much. Bye. I just thought that was a really compassionate look at what a lot of people are going through in some of these stories, you know. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I was I think the, the word accessible regarding literature can have some really unhelpful connotations. Sure. It's suggesting that someone is trying to universalize something or dumbing something down or whatever. Um but I think in in its in its best sense an accessible story is one that although the difference, the the experience of the characters might be wildly different than the life experience of the reader, I am, through craft choices she is making, I am oriented right away Mm -hmm. to the world of these characters, to what they care about, to what's at stake for them, to what is motivating them. All these different elements, which frees you up because you're not sitting there trying to make sense of it all. You're not Sitting there, wasting mental space on wait, why did she do that? You know exactly where you are, and yeah. you have the mental energy then to ask yourself the very complicated questions mm-hmm. that these stories are asking of us psychologically, philosophically, politically, historically. We're never going. Wait, I don't. I can't picture it. Um, mm-hmm. it it's it's so assured and so masterful as to be invisible. And the yeah. prose as well, you know, I, I think sometimes we talk about, you know, would you, you can either give us prose where it's like we are drinking something out of this elaborate chalice with a gem encrusted. And the point is to notice the cup or mm-hmm. you can give us beautiful, beautiful red wine in a glass that is so clear that the last thing we would notice is the glass mm-hmm. and we're there to enjoy the wine. And both of those are cool because you could have someone doing something really funky with language. And that's the point, but she's doing the other one. She's doing the invisible glass, and mm-hmm. we're able to just get this—you know—this concentrated world. Um, it 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 is. It doesn't look showy, and so I think it's it might be for for a casual reader would be really easy to miss everything that's going into these stories. She is phenomenal,
3: Rebecca. Yeah. You you really just captured. I was trying to figure out how to say how this collection made me feel. Mm-hmm. And as you were you were talking, I was like, oh, that's what it is. It made me feel like I was in my skin. Mm-hmm. Like over the course of the pandemic, I don't know about other people, but I sometimes kind of feel a little detached. You know, mm-hmm. I get to this point where it's just like, okay, I'm just, it's there's too much, I'm overloaded, uh, too much news, too yeah, much, too much, disengage. too much. Yeah. I need to, yeah, I need to disengage, I need to detach. And... The way she writes, the way she writes her characters, the way you are able to be in those characters and where they are, it made me feel more grounded in my own skin, Mm. which was marvelous. That's so beautiful.
1: Yeah, I think about, as a reader, one of the things that takes me away from a story the most is when a character does something that I don't agree with, like makes a choice that I'm just like, but that's like, why would you do that? But in this instance, I believed every single one of the choices they made. Mm -hmm. And so I was along with them for that ride. Even
2: when they're really strange choices. Even when they're really strange choices, (laughs) it
1: makes sense. Like she's created enough of a structure where you're like, of course you would, you would take the kid Mm -hmm. and, and figure it out, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just, I... And for that reason, I think especially it was such a pleasure because you, you end up in so many different places, even while you feel so grounded, you know? Yeah. Let's listen to one more voicemail. Here's Rwanda. Hi, Nerdette. This is Rwanda in Kansas City. And I just finished reading the Office of Historical Corrections. um, And my reaction is, oh, fuck. Like, (laughs) I feel like all of the characters feel very real and very well developed um and i think that's clearly a sign of the strong writing and just character development and the scene setting i think is beautiful um thanks Mm -hmm. i think i i didn't mean to bookend this with oh fucks but here (laughs) we are i'm pretty happy about it um i'm curious i mean as we heard from so many listeners a lot of us aren't used to reading short story collections but we're delighted by this one. Um, Rwanda in her voicemail mentioned what it means when a man falls from the sky is another one that feels a lot like this one. Mm. I'm curious since both of you are short story readers, if you've got maybe a collection or two that you might recommend for people. Rebecca, I know you mentioned the great American short stories earlier.
2: Best American short stories. Best American short stories. Yes. And the great thing about that is then you can go from there and follow um, people whose work you really like. So I have a couple specific collections that I, I will recommend. Um, one of them is a book that got a ton of attention this last year. It's called "The Secret Lives of Church Ladies." Oh yes, yes. Oh, Jen, you're
1: gonna love that one. Oh, you
2: will. It's um, gorgeous. It is. It, it um it won the Penn Faulkner Award, I believe. It was um, a finalist for the National Book Award. It's it's a debut, and it came out from this tiny West Virginia University Press. It's witty and sharp, and and like, I, oh, God, there's there's a story about peach cobbler that I think about mm. almost every day.
1: <laughs> um. Is this love story also? I really loved from that. one. Oh,
2: God. yeah, oh, It
1: yeah. was just. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's very experimental with form. Another mm-hmm. really interesting one recently is Kevin Rockmeyer, who's a writer from Arkansas. He just came out with a collection called The Ghost Variations, and it is one hundred one page stories. Every single one is a ghost story. Hmm. They're not campfire kind of ghost stories. This, these range just, you know, kind of literal ghosts, figurative ghosts. Um, It's, it is funky. He's doing really interesting Hmm. things with the form. But the other thing I was going to recommend since we were talking podcasts is just the Selected Shorts podcast, which is PRI. Um, Mm -hmm. That one, um, at least uh, pre-pandemic, what they do is these are, pretty big deal actors reading these stories on stage at symphony space in New York city. So there is not only an actor reading, but then a live audience response. Mm-hmm. And then they, they kind of curate those for the podcast. And um, as someone who I've trained myself lis- lately to listen to audiobooks, but I had a hard time with my listening comprehension early on um, somehow I was, I was, much better able to listen in those contexts and you get, you get a bit of introduction, there's the kind of the, the fun of which actor is reading what. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's a good uh, gateway drug.
1: Well, and like a person talking and, and a room responding. Like, when's the last time we got to hear that? Really? You know, like that sounds really <laughs> wonderful, too. Yeah. What do you think, Jen? Is there a collection you've read lately that you'd recommend?
3: Well, rather than a collection, I'll mention a couple of um, websites that I that oh, I nice. tend Perfect. to go to. So Tor.com um, drops a short story pretty much every week and this is a science fiction fantasy website and so it gets it gives me that fix mm-hmm. <laughs> without me falling into like you know it's a 17 book yeah, series can be, yeah that's epic right there right right and they and you get just like you'll get authors you're familiar with and then some authors you're not I really love that website Um I'm also a big fan of Lightspeed um, Lightspeed magazine and then the other one is Uncanny. It's uncannymagazine.com. Yes. And I love this site. They, they publish um, short fiction and uh, nonfiction, but they really focus on diverse forms. Uh, diverse voices in science fiction and fantasy, and so um, it's it's just a really wonderful site. They do a great job of curating stories. So you know, this is a way for you to kind of drop in to a genre mm-hmm. or just form a relationship <laughs> with a specific website. Where if you want a quick story to read, you know, you just go to one of those websites, read the stories that day, and then you can subscribe to their magazines. You know, as as you get more into the genre, but I, I, that those are some of my go-to sites.
1: Ooh, those are really good. Okay. So before I let y'all go, we decided on a completely arbitrary rating system for this book. And I think in this case, it needs to be rainbow bridesmaids.
3: Oh, oh, ooh. Okay. Out of well, 10 wait, rainbow
1: bridesmaids.
3: You, there's you some get, new
2: colors in there.
3: You get, you get the full 10 rainbow bridesmaids, full ten rainbow bridesmaids for bridesmaids.
2: me. Yes. Yeah. I want 10 rainbow bridesmaids holding a cake that says, Oh fuck. oh
1: that was perfect i'm thinking 10 rainbow bridesmaids just like coated in glitter (laughs) nice you know like let's just you know bedazzle the shit out of it (laughs) (laughs) oh jen white rebecca mckay thank you so much this was such an absolute pleasure to spend time with you it's great to talk to you love nerding out with you Thank you.
2: All right, that's
1: it for this month's book club. Sadie, Liz, Rachel, Rwanda, Sarah, Andrea, thank you so much for calling in with your voicemails. It was really wonderful to hear from all of you. I really loved the fucks, especially unsurprisingly. Next month's book selection is White Ivy. It's by Susie Yang. It's great. I can't wait for y'all to read it. Stay tuned for the author discussion, which comes out on May 11th, and then we'll have the panel discussion coming out on May 25th. The show is produced by me, along with Isabel Carter, and our executive producer is Brendan Bannazak. Thanks, y'all.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen, Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series.